This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, this week featuring one of the great Jewish institutional leaders of the last number of decades. Richard Joel has been the president of Hillel International as well as Yeshiva University. He's a lawyer, a community activist, and a really, really fascinating person. Someone who is terrific to learn from always, and especially now as our community is going through, along with the rest of the world, some very difficult, turbulent times. So looking forward to a wonderful conversation with Richard Joel. A reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher. We're now available on YouTube, where you can listen to the episodes there as well. Please share the podcast with friends, family, those looking for meaningful content during this corona period and beyond. And now to our conversation with longtime Hillel International President and Yeshiva University President, Richard Joel. We are here with Richard Joel, the longtime President of Hillel International, then the President of Yeshiva University for many years, now a consultant and a professor, hopefully enjoying a little bit of a respite in quasi-retirement. How are you, Mr. Joel? Funny, thank you. And thank you for the... Does being a consultant mean that somebody has to give you money? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not that kind of consultant. I think that's what it means. Actually, I'm I'm still, I'm a university professor at Yeshiva, so I'm teaching. But it is like quasi-retirement. Enjoying the privileges of teaching without the burdens of the presidency such as fundraising, which I'm sure we will get to shortly. But before we are at Yeshiva University, there was, I'm sure, quite a bit of upbringing and history. So tell us a little bit about where you were raised and where you are from, what your early childhood was like. Okay, well, I, I, I don't know if I've grown up yet, but I was raised in, uh, I was born in Riverdale. I was raised in Yonkers, New York, only child, wonderful parents. Uh, was uh, educated in Yonkers. Uh, the yeshiva in Yonkers wasn't something to go to, so we, I was in a Talmud Torah, and we had the Rabbeim serve as uh, tutors to me, and had a wonderful and happy childhood, uh, active in my shul in Yonkers, was in the High Holiday, the Yom Noram Choir, um, actually, which was the first place I kind of felt the presence of God. Um, Do you remember any of the hits? Can we uh, ask for a rendition? Yes, I do, and no. <laughs> And actually, before that, my, my father was from uh, Vilna originally and then South Africa. So when I was five, my mother and father took me to South Africa for eight months. My first real memory of a shul is the shul in Cape Town. And the first song I ever remember is the traditional Lachadodi, when my father would take me Friday night. So, you know, my, my, my faith, my sense of God, and my sense of... Uh, peoplehood is all wrapped up with family. And in fact, it's the kind of thing that Esther and I have tried to give to our children because it's enduring, sustaining, and uh, based on something more than uh, a divine discipline and something more than um, uh, than rules. It's, uh, I think, Kedoshim to you, Kedoshim Hashem. So you said your father was born in Vilna. What was their full background? Did they come before the war, during the war? What was that history? So my mother was born in the holy city of the Bronx and uh, before the war. Uh, my father was born in Vilna when he was in his late teens. He fled Poland and went to a cousin in southwest Africa uh, and then to South Africa where he built up a business both first as a, as a general store and then in the import and export business. Uh, he left South Africa to come to New York in 1940 where he... Uh, was in vital industry. He was importing quartz crystals from South America for the war effort. Uh, He met my mother, who was his secretary, 
who was also 20 years younger than he was. Oh my goodness, was that a scandal at the time? What was the reaction? I mean, I know you weren't around to uh, remember it, but do you know how people around them responded to that? Well, I have no memories of it. Um, I think uh, I think my uh, my mother's parents were uh, somewhat concerned about it, but when they saw that she meant it, uh, uh, they welcomed him, and uh, they always had a wonderful relationship. Um, uh, and then he stayed in the export business and uh, uh, had some other things on the side, and uh, uh, tried to build his life so that he'd usually be home for lunch. So when I would come home from school, he would be there. It was really a almost a uh, um, a fairy tale childhood. Um, uh, when I was 12, uh, pre-bar mitzvah, my parents took me on the grand tour of Europe for 30 days. Um, we, uh, and then uh, we had a, a memorable bar mitzvah, as I recall, and then my father, uh, two months afterwards, uh, was stricken with uh, brain cancer and uh, died uh, a few months thereafter. So uh, a little bit the, uh, the music died at that point. Um, but I had a wonderful mother, and I had wonderful memories of my father. And I think, in a in a key way, uh, there the message was: uh, don't look at, at when he died; look at how he lived, and realize that uh, that life is a gift, and every day counts. There's a there are two lines from the show Zorba. Uh, one line goes: um, I live every day like I'll never die. And the other person answers, it's, answers and says, I'll live every day as if I'll die tomorrow. And I think that, uh, that yin-yang is somehow a, a very much a perspective. I grew up, I was active in the youth group in shul. Um, I played the accordion um, and sang a little bit, so I started the, being the designated kumzitz giver. Um, went to MTA, Yeshiva University High School. I had a... Uh, a wonderful encounter with God, a less wonderful encounter with the Jewish people. Um, I, uh, it, was, it was a great education, but uh, I was not happy there, and wild horses couldn't get me to go to YU. So there was a, it was, this was 1968, so there was a brand new interdisciplinary program on leadership at NYU. Uh, they gave me a full scholarship and asked me to go, and I said, that's where I'm going. And NYU in the... So you did go to YU, you just added the N. <laughs> I added the N, and it was a campus of NYU in those days that was just across the river from, from YU. So I would still get to come across the river whenever the Rav would give a shear, you know, a public shear, I kind of sneak my way in. Um, but I was involved in uh, the youth outreach activities of Yeshiva in those days, something called Torah Leadership Seminar. Um, so I, I was involved, as I think I told you, for the worst reason. Um, I met a girl at a Shabbaton in my community and uh, didn't have the nerve to ask her out. She told me she was going to this program and I should go. She left. Um, uh, I managed to get the chutzpah to go into YU and ask if they had any positions. They asked me if I'd do anything. I told them i play the accordion and sing. They asked me to sing for me. I almost put a plaque up in that room at YU where I stood there singing Torah, 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 Tziva Lanu Moshe. Took a chance on me. I went to the seminar. The girl I was uh, looking for wasn't there. She was there, but she had uh, been there the whole summer at Camp Marashan. She left. And, uh, but somehow, uh, you know, the, the Rabboni Shalom has a habit of looking down into the bottom of the barrel, and there I am. Um, so I became the director of that program. I was brought to the first the team meeting of the advisors who were selected, introduced to my girl's head advisor, who was that girl, and we're married for 46 and a half years. Um, so that was a defining time of my life, running those kind of programs, seeing, the, uh, seeing that I had some organizational skill, but more than that, feeling the um, incredible fulfillment of creating real-life environments where people could be exposed to values and to living and to, um, you know, to Hashem in ways that, uh, that really mattered. Uh, that did not keep me from going to law school. I went to NYU Law School um, and uh, I, was, I went to fix the world. I realized law school wasn't necessarily about fixing the world, um, but I became an assistant district attorney in New York in the Bronx. Uh, was the only, I wasn't interested in corporate world. I wasn't very smart. In those days, you didn't worry about, are you going to make a living? Unless you were really looking to say, I want to make a killing. So it was, you didn't know if you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or a rabbi or a, you know, an educator. Uh, that was my world anyway. I guess it was maybe before the tuition crisis. So 
there was always a tuition crisis. Now, I know it's harder now, but I have to tell you, I don't remember it being easy. I remember mortgaging our home three times to be able to afford tuition. Esther and I always had at least two jobs, um, and, and it was fine. It is harder now for two reasons. Number one, uh, because the percentage of your income that has to go to tuition is somewhat higher. And number two, our standard of living is higher. We, you know, my, my, my eldest daughter, who's now 45, says she remembers when, uh, when a vacation was bowling. And somehow, we, and we were not deprived. We always had a home. We lived in nice communities. We were on uh, Hermley Road in, the, in, in the Silver Spring. Uh, it, was, it was a nice middle-class life. It wasn't the expectation of two months of camp every year and of uh, uh, winter vacations. And it, it was, it, and it was not impoverished, but it's harder now, yes. But, but there was always that burden. But beyond that, we thought we'd make it. We just thought we would make it. I became youth director of a synagogue in Oceanside, New York, because the rabbi browbeat me into it and told me that the, in addition to the part-time salary, there was a house and I could get to live in uh, suburbia and see if I liked it. Esther and I moved there. After two years, we bought a home there. And I was youth director for 11 years while I was an assistant district attorney, then became um, assistant dean and then associate dean at Cardozo Law School. Um, not because I was a great legal scholar, but because I was a good manager and the president of Yeshiva University wanted someone from down at the law school. And I agreed. The faculty was very nice. They liked me and they named me a professor. So I then, for about the nine years, taught the legal ethics uh, to show that I have a sense of humor um, and um, a little bit of, uh, of, of writing and, uh, and the debating. And I uh, ran the school. I was the chief manager of the school. As ADA, what was your experience? I mean, I guess you were representing the state and prosecuting some pretty difficult criminals. I was representing the people of the state of New York, and this was 1975 to 79. Not the best days for the city. It was very hard days, and I was in the Bronx, which was, uh, which was just on fire. Um, and I mostly did appellate work, so I guess the, the, the cleaner level, and that it was after people were convicted and they appealed their convictions, and we had to do a lot of writing and appear before appellate courts. But I also did my share of trials and things like homicide duty, where uh, if someone uh, died in Bronx County, you would uh, get called, and then you'd have to race into Bronx County um, from Oceanside to preside over the crime scene. I was a 26-year-old, uh, I was a know-nothing. The only people who knew that I knew nothing were all the policemen who always held the DAs in, uh, um, you know, a little bit of contempt. Um, but it was a, by the way, in 1976, there were uh, over 450 homicides in the Bronx in 76. This year, please God, there are fewer than 400 homicides in all of New York City. So it was a different time. Um, I chose to be a DA because I thought, I believed in the rule of law. I mean, I'm a Ben Torah. Uh, and I also believed that you needed people who were somewhat liberal, which I was and probably still am, to be prosecutors because the goal wasn't to convict people. It was to represent the people of New York and, and, and uh, try to achieve justice. And, uh, and, People would have to uh, uh, serve their time and pay for their crimes, but uh, uh, that was the job. It was very interesting. Some of it was very painful. I, I remember many times of driving into the South Bronx and, uh, and going to crime scenes, and the DA would be the one who would have to read the uh, people their rights and take statements from uh, witnesses. Uh, I also remember once going up to the apartment building where my grandparents used to live and on the Grand Concourse, which was a great Jewish community and was no longer a great Jewish community. I remember going up to the door of the apartment uh, before I went in, and I saw on the lintel the outline of paint painted over where a mezuzah used to be. And you went into the same apartment, but it was radically not the same place. There were no smells of fragrance of chicken soup, and there were no pictures of the children, and there was no family life. And, and I say that to say, what it really was, was hopeless and painful. These were not bad people. These were people with no hope. And um, I remember going into that apartment and, and identifying a body and talking to his common law wife who said that uh, he was threatening her and she took out a gun and killed her. 
And so who was, you know, it, it was it was awful. I, I have other horrific stories. There's, uh, I was up almost all night on a, on a multiple homicide right near Yankee Stadium. And I went home and got into bed at 2 o'clock in the morning. And at 5 to 6, I got a call from one of my friends in Oceanside uh, that someone's parent had died and that Hever Kadisha had to do its thing. And I remember getting up at 6 o'clock, going to the funeral home and performing a Tara. And it was an incredibly cathartic moment for me because I had just spent 15 hours dealing with life that had no value. And now I came and spent an hour with, uh, with, with a mace who was given Kabar Aharon. And um, uh, that's not a comparison between Yisrael and Amin. It's a comparison between if you make your life have values and if you're unfortunate enough to be in a situation um, where it's hopeless and where you're a victim. You feel like you burned out of that work and that's why you wanted to move on? No, I don't think... One of the problems in my life and why I'm a terrible role model is I never uh, remember wanting to move on. I was always approached by somebody and it's not a good way to build a career. Uh, it happened, I lucked out. Um, but uh, I was I was a deputy chief of the Appeals Bureau in the Bronx. I had just signed another three-year commitment to the DA. Um, uh, I didn't know what I would do, but I didn't particularly worry about it, whether I was going to go, uh, you know, think about being a judge or, or being a, uh, uh, a law assistant or transferring over into the civil world. But I was contacted by YU and, and uh, told there was a fairly a, a law school in its second year and that uh, Dr. Lamb, who was the president, wanted uh, me to go and be first the assistant dean and then it became associate dean. I got a leave of absence from the DA's office, and, and that was it. What did you learn in that experience? I mean, you were quite young to be taking over a, a law school. Well, I wasn't taking it over. I was the, the assistant dean. That's an important... I was the dean's pooper scooper. Um, but what it was... <coughs> excuse me. In my leadership class, I talk about the difference between management and leadership. So you can have leadership in your management, but basically you have a series of tasks that you have to make sure get done. And, um, and I learned an enormous amount. I think I learned the most about what I've done for my life when I was the head advisor of Torah Leadership Seminar uh, because it was a volunteer job. And yet all, all the people you knew were around. You got to train a staff. You thought creatively of what a program should be. You were dealing with young people. And I guess when I look back, if you ask what my profession was, it was always educator. Um, and, um, but I learned a lot at Cardozo. It was, uh, for me, it was always important to be, um, a part of the world. I believe that we as Jews are supposed to be apart from, but a part of. And, uh, and Cardozo was a great venue. I could wear my yarmulke. They called me Dean Joel. I was responsible for Yiddishkeit a little bit there. And I learned a lot and I taught law. So it was, uh, it was quite nice. And I, w- I would go home at night and if I, was feeling too full of myself, I'd have a five-year-old kid in my youth group put his, uh, put his feet on my feet and say, okay, carry me around, Richie. Um, one kid called me Richie, but I've never forgotten. Um, and uh, I did that for a, a while. And, um, and life was really wonderful. I mean, I'm leaving out one full part of life, the most important, which is my wife. Um, and we built a family. By that time, we had five wonderful kids. We were involved in the Oceanside community. Uh, uh, you know, we, Esther helped build the mikvah and was the president of the sisterhood. And Esther and I started the Hever Kadisha and we were active with the Hebrew Academy of Long Beach. It was a, uh, I, I ended up being on the, on the board of the Jewish Community Council of Oceanside. All these things, I mean, looking back, we were very, very busy. We weren't people who said, boy, we want to be involved. We really weren't. Our family is the center. But you find yourself um, wanting to step forward because things needed to be done. So, so Cardoza was great. I learned budgets. I learned some management. I learned some politics of a university. Um, and after about nine years, I decided that it would be nice if the children ate regularly. Um, so I was looking around for a job in law. Um, I was in consultation. I thought I'd go into corporate law. Um, and Esther wasn't happy. She didn't think I'd be happy doing that. And I was recruited out of the blue uh, to be a candidate to be the president of the Hillel Foundation globally. I said no. Esther said yes. 
I went for an interview. I wasn't invested in the interview. That's the best way to take an interview. Hard to get. <laughs> yeah. And then they offered me a job and my wife made me do it. Now, certainly on a certain level, it was a thrill. I was 37 um, to think that my first kind of professional job in Jewish life would be to run an international agency, albeit one that was not particularly successful, which is, I think, why they, they turned to me. We moved to Silver Spring, which was, I never thought I'd leave Oceanside, but it was a wonderful adventure. We spent 15 glorious years there. Uh, we managed to build a shul there, too. I'm going to stop talking so much so you can ask me questions. You mentioned that Hillel came and found you, but how do they even know about you? How are you even on their radar? It turns out there were two ways. One was I was friends with a lovely fellow named Joel Paul, uh, who became an executive recruiter in the Jewish community. He had known me through my YU work, and he called and reached out to me, and I told him no. Uh, at the same time, a blessed friend of blessed memory named Joel Daner was the head of recruitment for the Council of Jewish Federations. And he called me and he said, remember I told you I didn't think there was any job good enough for you in the Jewish community? He says, here's a long shot, and you're a long shot, but maybe. So I said no to both of them. And um, at why were they looking? They had been unsuccessful. They had a series of rabbis. They were still a part of B'nai B'rith, and B'nai B'rith was at war with the rest of the Jewish community. They were looking for a reset button, and this fellow, Joel Paul, and the other guy, I think, mentioned them, mentioned me to them, and, um, and, and uh, then they called and said, Joel Paul came, called and said, I need you to interview. So um, I met with him a little bit, did a little bit of research, and went down to Washington for an interview. I, you know, it's not what I would suggest to anybody, except I would always say, when someone wants to talk to you, always talk to them, always be honest and forthright and say it's not a particular interest, but talk to them. Obviously, your wife was intrigued, but you must have also seen something there, some potential that you felt you could cultivate. What, what did you see and what were you hoping to accomplish through that position? I believe in the Jewish people. I believe that that um, that most people don't have a passionate relationship with Yiddishkeit because they never have. And if there are opportunities, and I'm not talking about Frumkeit now, if there are opportunities for for people to know their story and to also have the kind of experiences that show the value added of Judaism, it's very special. I also was, I guess, of a generation that thought the goal was not to make it, but to make it better. And if someone thought I could do it, and I also have to tell you, I think Esther was right. I didn't look forward to spending my life um, uh, as an attorney. I think it's a very wonderful way for those who enjoy it. Um, and, and you might know as well, once you're involved in any kind of youth movement, it kind of ruins your life. Uh, because you see perhaps uh, the, the incredible um, pleasure that you get out of out of uh, kind of being a, a, a spark that lights other candles. And so although I was being responsible, and I certainly, to myself, never pictured myself in a leadership position, I'm sure on some level there were these yearnings within me. So what did you do to turn it around? And why was it even so small to begin with at the time? I mean, it seems nowadays from a 21st century perspective, entirely self-evident that this should be a major enterprise. Obviously, I'm involved in the college space and I'm very familiar with Hillel, but there's also Chabad and the organization that I work for, Ma'or, which has lots of affiliates, Olami and similar. I mean, it seems pretty obvious that this is a major, major need in the Jewish community. What was going on then that it wasn't? And again, what did you do to then make it a communal priority? It was major, it was just impoverished, and it, it, it had become kind of the whipping boy for the Jewish community. If uh, they send their kids away, around, away to college and the kid becomes uh, uh, not involved, instead of saying, well, that's the way we sent them to college, they would say, well, yeah, Hillel didn't do anything for them. Uh, Hillel had a, had a really proud history. It started in 1920 in the University, 24, in the University of Illinois. Um, and uh, as it started to grow, it sought to have different organizations sponsor them, and the one that would was B'nai B'rith. 
that's why it became a program of B'nai B'rith. And B'nai B'rith put a ton of money into it over, over 60 years. But B'nai B'rith was getting, um, was 150 years old. And, um, uh, and all these uh, communal organizations and these fraternal organizations were dying in the 80s. Um, and B'nai B'rith had appealed for years to rabbis. Um, often it seemed to be the synagogue on campus. Um, certainly by the 60s and the 70s, most Jewish students would identify it as the synagogue on campus and therefore say, I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, there were always a core of activists, from and not from, who would try to, who would use Hillel. You had wonderful Hillel rabbis from all the denominations, but they weren't community builders. They really wanted to have a, a you know, a shteller without balabatim. Uh, and they also, many of them wanted to be able to teach at the university. Then the Jewish studies programs came into being and they didn't want the Hillel rabbis, they wanted educators with PhDs, and Hillel was more and more marginalized. It was weak, it wasn't centralized, um, and, um, and it was a hard time. It was a very hard time. Lots of fights between B'nai B'rith and Hillel, and between B'nai B'rith and the federations. It was just um, a really noble enterprise filled with really good people who were at best treading water. So I, I thought what it needs always, I mean, my definition of what leadership is, is it, that it's a vision plus an implementation strategy. That, that if, if there's no vision, you know, I, I, I think I quoted to you the, uh, the, in the Mad Hatter, um, I think the Cheshire Cat said that if you don't know where you're going, any road you take will get you there. Um, well, you know, we have important things to do as a people, to be a Mamlachas Kohanim V'goy Kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And um, what it needed was, ultimately what it needed was to be independent. It had to chart its own destiny. Uh, what it obviously needed, although I didn't think about it much at all, was money. Uh, when I took it over, the global expenditures of Hillel all across the country were about $12 million. When I left, it was between 70 and 80. Um, not because, I, look, I was the catalyst, but it wasn't about me. Uh, it can't be. You won't succeed that way. Um, but uh, the vision had to be a renewed vision. It had to be pluralism in a very honest and open way, not meaning let's come up with a nice homogenized Judaism, but saying let us thousand flowers blossom, and I get to be orthodox, others get to be reform. I don't have to say that conservative is right or not right. I get to say I disagree with things, they get to disagree with me, but we don't have to spend our lives hitting each other. There's a lot we agree upon. And, um, uh, and you do have to do all the right things. You have to look it over. There, were, there was only an old, an elderly B'nai B'rith lay leadership. It needed revitalization. It needed to be viewed as a franchise so it would be strong and connected. Uh, some of the people had to leave. And I didn't know if I had the authority to do that or not, but I did it. Um, and, um, but the lift of the driving dream is what's most important. What are we about? And, and, you know, as I said, the role here was to maximize number of students doing Jewish with other Jews. Uh, 30 students involved wasn't enough. I had some wonderful people with me. We got some wonderful lay leaders involved. We ended up raising money, something I've already told you I partic don't particularly enjoy doing. Uh, and I didn't ever think I was particularly good at it. Um, but the students were wonderful. That's the other thing. I mean, in any of these things, you keep your eye on the ball, right? Hillel wasn't about the Hillel rabbis. Hillel was about 250,000 Jewish students on campuses in the United States and beyond. So over the next 15 years, we built 27 Hillels in the former Soviet Union. We built Hillels in South America and we rebuilt Hillels in the United States but mostly we, uh, I think we built a quality franchise enterprise that was capturing the desire of the community. They kept talking about continuity. Continuity is a dead and dying word. We started talking about Renaissance. The notion, yes, you could. Look how you could make a difference. Look how you can be involved. Look how you can learn. Look how you can do things communally. And uh, it was a wonderful time. What do you think was the most complicated problem you faced taking Hillel up to that different level? 
I, I assume, I think the most complicated thing was, was turning Hillel into an independent entity and not being a stepchild either of B'nai B'rith or of the Federation world. That was a hugely uh, uh, difficult. We did it with a good flavor, um, uh, not alienating uh, anybody, but just going to the next step. But it took five years. And then along with that, being able to, using that as a vehicle, attract lay leaders who had never thought of the incredible return on investment you get by investing in, the, in college students. Um, uh, it was a, a, you know, the staff had to be larger. They had to be from, of, of more quality. I think Hillel rabbis had to view themselves as responsible for an entire community. Um, so now, nowadays you have Hillel directors, some are rabbis, some are not. They all take responsibility, but you also have to have Jewish educators affiliated with Hillel. And it has to be open and take in partners. So obviously at some point, someone else came calling. What made you at that moment be ready to leave, to take on a new challenge? Did you feel you had kind of plateaued, that you had accomplished everything you could there? You know, I've interviewed Eric Fingerhut. He was actually the first guest that I had on the podcast, episode one, just around uh, 117 episodes ago or so. And so I know his story and both why he took the job and then ultimately he eventually left quite recently. But what was it for you that told you it was time to go, time to move on, and time specifically to tackle this particular new challenge? Eric came in almost, I think, eight, eight years after I had left. And Hillel had gone through some very unfortunate times. Uh, look, things change always. And you have to grow with the changes. Campus is much more complicated. You need very strong leadership. And you need to constantly be working at all the constituent parts. Eric came in and revitalized it much. It was much in the way that we had tried to do it. And I think he did a really wonderful job, as did Hillel directors. But it's, it's hard. It's hard, and it's hard, and it's hard. Um, was I ready to leave them? I always believed that nobody should keep a leadership job for more than 10 years. I think 10 years is important because it takes a long time to start changing the culture. At a certain point, um, no matter how much you're able to refresh yourself, it's often important to have other voices, other approaches. You don't want it to be owned too much by you. Um, so I thought 10 years was the maximum. So I did 15 years at Hillel and almost 15 at Yeshiva uh, because circumstances take over in that way. I would tell you, for me, my goal in life was not to be a Jewish um, a public servant. It was to be a, um, an active and caring Jew. Um, but for me, Hillel was the unbelievable opportunity. I mean, that I had a chance to be part of really changing the, the, the dynamic in major ways in terms of the role of young people and the community was a great blessing. And I never thought... I thought I'd leave, but I thought afterwards I would be a, what you want me to be, a consultant or work for a foundation. Um, I didn't need a next. I, 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 so, no, I was not looking to leave. I would speculate. Jobs would come my way that I was not particularly interested in, in, in the Jewish community. Um, I, I, uh, I knew at some point uh, it would be right to leave, and I'd have to think about it. We love being in the Washington area, and I didn't want to lose that. Um, and um, when Yeshiva did originally uh, start its search for a new president, uh, the search committee came to me, and I, I said I wasn't interested. Um, I love Yeshiva. I don't always like it, but I love it. I think it's critically important. I think it's one, I, you know, Jonathan Sachs says it's the most important Jewish institution in the diaspora. And I think it is. Um, and it has to be. Uh, and I, but I had been involved for a lot of years. I saw the politics of it. Uh, I knew how uh, it would be change averse. Um, and, um, and I loved what I was doing. I would always say I have the best job in Jewish America. So three times I told them I wouldn't be a candidate. I also didn't want to go the whole route of the big public candidacy and your name is thrown around with others and people talk and people talk about you. So I, I said, no, I was a, a little wistful about it. But I thought it wasn't for me. I also didn't think there'd be a chance I'd get it. I'm neither a Rav nor a Gaon, nor a Sage. And um, I thought that was the model that they would uh, stick by. So two years passed, and uh, then they came back to me 
And uh, one particular gentleman uh, in particular kind of insisted until I agreed to have lunch in New York. And that was on November 5th. And somehow uh, I left that lunch thinking I had told them absolutely no. And I was elected a month later. It's hard. It's hard when you are blessed with an opportunity to make a difference in something that you think matters. Then you have to think if you can make that difference and what the cost would be. Because I have to tell you, I wasn't willing to be um, to, to, to be self-sacrificial. I mean, we as Jews banned human sacrifice. I was willing, and Esther and I were willing to invest a lot. But the price couldn't be how did the children suffer, or how did, how was I not able to be a parent. Or how was there not laughter and joy in my home? I'm, there are wonderful people who do that. And call a kavod to them. They are the heroes of the Jewish people. I'm, I, I'm not Moshe. And therefore, I wanted my children to know who I was. What did you think were the major issues at Yeshiva that you were going to need to deal with? And why did you feel qualified specifically to tackle them? I mean, Hillel is a very different animal. It's this multinational, pluralistic organization. And now you're transitioning to a single individual university, although it has different disparate components and divisions, but one major institution and also a bit more monolithic in terms of its philosophical approach. So kind of a a different type of challenge. What were the issues and how did you think your career until that point had prepared you to deal with them? Yeah, it's not quite that sharp, but yes, it's a difference between being in charge of a corporation with many branches and and going to a university. And in fact, many people at Hillel said, why are you doing this? You're a much larger player on the Jewish global scene. And at Yeshiva University, no matter how important it is, you're a university president and you'll remain that. And in fact, I did back away from you know being kind of well-known and, and a part of different initiatives. I Look, I believe that at Hillel, I could deal with the children of about 80% of the Jewish people. Uh, I thought that was critically important. But I also thought that, that, that in order for the, there to be a proud and sustaining Yiddishkeit, there had to be um, a centrist orthodoxy, a modern orthodoxy that was strong, learned, committed, and involved. And I thought this was the, and I always thought, thought, saw yeshiva as a shining city on a hill. It's a, it's a place for exceptionalism. Uh, and um, uh, maybe it was a little tired. I won't say anything about what it was. I do know that in going into the next century, into the next millennium, um, it had to renew a focus on the students. It had to um, be more of a team. There had to be a sense of what is yeshiva's role vis-a-vis the larger Jewish community and the larger community. Um, I started something called the Center for the Jewish Future because I thought yeshiva had to be both a university and a movement and had to serve communities and rabbis and educators. Um, and I think, um, I, I think they were, you know, my, my theme for the first years was that yeshiva had to be a place that could ennoble and enable. And both those aspects, that a student comes out and the institution is such that it has a sense of Jewish passion that it's a values-driven place, which often is not the case, unfortunately, in universities, and that it also would give a, uh, an exceedingly fine education so the students could also uh, build their careers. Um, that was a wonderful um, challenge. But we didn't want to move back to New York, but it's hard to commute. Um, and we moved to Riverdale, and um, it was 14 wonderful, hard... Ch- All of these are very hard and challenging. If someone thinks you... You, you take the scepter of leadership and you have these people and you tell them what to do. And one of the things I learned, I mean, you can be president of a university and if you snap your fingers, do you know what happens? Nothing, except you've snapped your fingers. Um, the chance to be with people, to change hearts and minds, to get people on all levels to realize that what they're engaging in is a Dabar Shiva Kedusha. Um, the first thing I did at Yeshiva is uh, on the doors of the buildings, there were one of two signs that said, enter only or exit only. And I didn't know what I could do, but I figured I could get the maintenance staff to do something. So they stripped the doors, and on all the doors, I think on Hayom Hazeh, it says, Welcome to Yeshiva University. And, and I think that's part, of the, that's part of what we did. I had learned a lot from Hillel. I mean, I have to say, by that point, if I didn't understand how to 
move forces and how to uh, come up with visions and have people buy into those visions and and do some strategic planning and um, and yes encourage take in partners strategic partners and fundraising partners it was it was it was wonderful it was exhausting it was um, 24 7 and I say seven um, uh, it was but our home was always filled we had students uh, for Shabbatot and I think the children got a wonderful experience between Hillel and between YU. I think it was a very fulfilling thing for them. Is one of the challenges at YU kind of bridging the two sides of the institution, the yeshiva and the university part? And how do you go about doing that? I think one of the, one of the challenges is to not view it as, as, as two sides. Um, there's one side, which is that we are B'nai Torah. And that we want our children to live Torah-informed and uh, mandated lives. But we have always believed that to do so and to be an Arla Goyim, you can be part of society. And you should be. And I think we've always believed that God created wisdoms. And God created science. And God created all kinds of interactions. And that that's the place of the Jew. Now, yes, clearly there are people at any university, yeshiva uh, included, who don't necessarily have that, uh, that nuanced view. And I think, I think in terms of leadership, you work very hard to have them see that one and one can be five and that, that we weren't taking away anything. I think I developed goodwill with the faculty and with the Rashi yeshiva. I think they could often disagree with me, but they never disagreed with my motives. And I think um, one of the things we did was we built a, a new base medrash where a parking lot had been right next to the library. I wanted to bring the base medrash closer to the center of the campus. We built a wonderful building with 11 classrooms, a magnificent base medrash, offices for the Rashi Yeshiva. And I built it physically connected to the library with a, a corridor connecting the library and the base medrash. Some of the, some of the uh, uh, people thought it was inappropriate and there should be a separation between the two. I plowed ahead. Um, they weren't organized enough to really oppose me. And it hasn't, it hasn't either detracted from uh, Herman Melville or, or Lahavdol from the Raven. And I think that's always a hard thing. I think also as the issues of the day take hold and you have a university, so the core of the university is a Torah institution, but it's also a university. So the law school has courses in Jewish life, it's kosher, it keeps a Jewish calendar, but it welcomes everybody and, and people in the law um, have different issues and visions that don't necessarily comport with a halachic lifestyle. And how do you negotiate that? And how do you do that with goodwill um, is a challenge. It takes a lot of strength. Uh, plus the issues of, of, of the world, you know, financial crashes and, and scandals and all types of things like that. It was physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausting. And it was physically, spiritually and emotionally uplifting. I do want to ask you about some of the crises that you weathered because you really were at the helm during some really challenging times. But before that, I just quickly want to ask, you were privy from sort of an insider's vantage point to some great Jewish scholars and leaders. Is there anything you learned from them just being around them that people not intimately connected with them might not know about, things that you got to observe or be privy to just by nature of your proximity? I learned from great people, but I also learned that they're all people. Okay, that al tiftachuv and adivim, don't trust in the princes, doesn't mean think less of people. He's realized they're people and that there is no complete person. Everybody has their own, uh, I guess the Latin word is mishigas, um, and I think if you set yourself up thinking, here's an incredible scholar, here's a great leader, here's an unbelievable Rav and Posek, that in them, you will just sit at their feet and say, I will be like that person is. I don't think the, the, the right people want that from you. 
And I think that was one lesson. But there were, it's also wonderful, particularly when you're, when you're responsible for yeshiva and you see uh, great Talmidei Chachamim who comport themselves with dignity, who struggle for how they should transmit to students, who appreciate when you make it warmer and more open. That's a great lesson. Maybe the best thing I ever heard was from Lord Jonathan Sachs, who I remember when we were in one of our crises, and it was just extremely difficult. He would come in to see me from time to time. He was uh, part of our faculty for three years. So it was one of my, my very happy achievements. And he turned to me once and he said, Richard, you need to remember that the most important thing is to have the respect of people you respect. You know, when you're in the public eye, and when there's the blogosphere, and there's the Shabbos table with its Lashon Hara, and with you, you sometimes just view yourself as a target. Um, uh, it's very important to focus and say it's not about the daily polls, and it's not about um, what, what people who are taking a small approach will do. Uh, it's about how true you can be to yourself and whether people who you respect uh, will respect you. So let's get into some of those crises that you mentioned. You, of course, were at the helm of Yeshiva during the last major recession, 2008. Now we're recording during Corona, which, of course, is not looking too great for the future of the world economy, at least in the immediate short term. And I want to go back to some of those difficulties that you encountered how did you deal with them, the general recession, and of course, some of those great scandals that many people may remember, such as the Madoff scandal, which definitely struck Yeshiva as well. It was publicized back then. How did you deal with all of those? And tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, look, I think the most important lesson is that crises end. And... I think it's really important to take the long view while not ignoring the day, taking the long view and be strong enough not to be buffeted by quick kind of actions. Um, also, to remain a cheerleader, not a foolish one, but to always think about, I, my chairman at Hillel was a, a wonderful philanthropist named Edgar Bronfman. And he had chaired the World Jewish Congress, did a lot fighting anti-Semitism and Nazi Swiss gold and all that stuff. And he turned to me once and said, well, I, I, you know, I've been watching you. I understand. He said, what I think is important is hope, not fear. He told me that when he became president of the World Jewish Congress, um, he made an appointment to see uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, the Rav. Well, he wasn't from at all, Edgar Bronfman. But he met with the Rav and he said, Rabbi Soloveitchik, I've just become the president of the World Jewish Congress. What advice could you give me? And he told me that the Rav said to him, Mr. Bronfman, please remember that the Jewish people were created for more than fighting anti-Semitism. So I guess the first lesson is keep your eye on the ball. Um, the other is that crises do end. Um, I think you need to make sure that you stay healthy. Uh, for which family takes a critical role, but also to get an executive coach and also to have a consultant who can tell you. Have people around you who love you enough to tell you what you don't want to hear. Very, very important. And then craft a plan and be prepared to change it as it goes along. Um, uh, no place for acting out or for your own anger. That just has to be put aside, now I'm making it sound easier than it was because of course there's time of great consternation, um, but with the coronavirus too, which I must say is so much more complex and life-threatening than anything I had to deal with. And I thank the Rabboni Shalom every day that, uh, that this is not my worry. But each one in its own time and its own, we had death threats and we had terror uh, concerns and all of that. There are existential crises. If you remember why you're doing this, and if you remember what matters, that fuels you going forward. And you have to think about your responsibility. And your responsibility is to help bring people together to chart a course, but also to keep hope alive. And, and to keep remembering what's responsible. 
I guess what I've seen is that these do end. Um, it's not about responding to every accusation or every attack or every um, uh, radical desire to change. Just settle down a little bit. Um, uh, I think someone once said when when there used to be newspapers and um, and uh, you know things would be written in the newspaper and there would be horrible things. So there was a statement. Don't worry about what's on the front page of the newspaper. Next week, it will be lining the floor of bird cages. That's good perspective. That's correct. What did you do in 2008, and how did you make a plan, and in particular, dealing with the optics being tied to this colossal villain? How did you navigate that? Well, look, I, had a, I really had a good board. And, uh, and anybody who had seen, look, I came in, at, uh, I was elected at the end of 2002. This was 2008. They had already seen uh, tremendous um, changes for the good, building on what my predecessor had, had given to me. Um, uh, so there was a, a sense of optimism. It was very interesting because this scandal broke the week of our annual Hanukkah dinner, which was a major dinner and 700 people and giving out honorary degrees at the Waldorf Astoria. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the president of Yeshiva University. <laughs> and there you go to stand. And, and I, I thought a lot about it. And I, I came across as much me as I could um, and didn't belittle it, but basically said to them without, you know, also not make reference to it, but basically said to them, uh, what I what I just said to you, which is take the long view, realize who we are, realize how precious it is. Anything that has to be done will be done. Uh, this is a great enterprise, and you have to be part of it, and you will be part of it, and there will be transparency. Um, look, the, the, the quickest way to do it was, first of all, make sure that any of the people who were recognized as villains were gone. Secondly, to say that we really want to look at how we operate to make sure um, that we operate properly. Uh, the rumors and the people who wanted to throw bricks were always saying more radical things than was, than was true. Uh, there was no massive conflict of interest in how yeshiva operated. Trustees never made money off of it, except for one villain. Um, the uh, conflict of interest policies we had were the same as other major universities, right? But clearly, right, um, we had allowed the situation to come that, um, uh, that a sociopath was on our board, and uh, nobody would have told you he shouldn't have been, except maybe a few people, but, and, um, and that there was someone else working with him um, frankly, who was uh, who shouldn't have been involved, uh, but it did trigger. First of all, it was a, a serious money loss. Although the bigger money loss was six months later with the crash of the Great Recession, it just came one on top of the other. Um, we froze salaries. We did some serious cutting without um, eliminating um, uh, any any faculty strength um, or the quality of life. Um, we uh, we weathered. We did some hard things, and um, uh, but we, 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 we kept going, and we kept pushing for good things. We always made sure that even as we were trimming different things, there were other new initiatives. We were always committed to student scholarship. We were always committed to financial aid for students. Um, I think our presence in Israel with the Shana Aleph and Shana Bet schools um, always stayed strong. I would be there a few times a year, and other and Rabbeim would go, and and that kept the uh, the funnel going. We had been working to improve the school of business, and um, um, you know the career development center and the counseling center. So the institution was strong. Uh, we ended up redoing our bylaws, strengthening the conflict of interest <coughs> systems, and and like every other university struggling uh, to get through the Great Recession. And we did. Do you feel like you've been calloused, made cynical by a person like Madoff now that you were sort of hoodwinked by 
such a charismatic person does it make you more suspect around charismatic people in general and or less trusting just in general yeah look i i i, I refuse to be cynical um i i think you should be skeptical but you should never be cynical uh, oscar wilde said a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing so that would be a terrible a terrible destruction um, if, if that, in fact, uh, would, would happen. Um, so I didn't become cynical. Um, I always thought not to put too much of your belief in people. I do believe in people, but I'm saying they're not God. God is God. Um, and, um, and I also think that some of the things that happened were things that I kind of warned the trustees about, but they told me I didn't know anything about business. So uh, I think what I learned from that is that I have to, is that once you have a responsibility, even if you're not the greatest expert, um, you have to not listen to other, maybe wiser, certainly more experienced heads who say, no, 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 and stick to your guns a little bit. But, um, I, I, no, it didn't, it didn't change my perspective. I didn't end up believing in me more and other people less. I think I learned a little bit how to be differently cautious, how to have safeguards. We worked for a long time to get some financial transparency in Yeshiva before this happened. Because with all universities, they used to be small mom, mom and pop shops, and all of a sudden they were mega businesses, and it took us... 12 years to get good, really good financial systems in place so we could even know what we had. So, um, no, the lessons learned were to be strong and to, and to um, uh, not catastrophize. That's a very, that's an important lesson. Every time there's something, you can easily say this is a catastrophe because sometimes it seems like it is. But don't treat it as such. Say step by step, stay involved with people. Use your leadership to reassure people and to challenge them. That's an important lesson, especially during this time. Just in closing, Richard, what are you doing now? You're doing a little teaching. Are you just enjoying your grandchildren beyond that? Any major plans for the future? New engagements or goals that you have beyond some well-deserved time with family? And like we said at the beginning, some teaching and consulting, paid or otherwise. <laughs> well, it's, it's not a just. Um, you know, I, I, just, I just even wrote something about this. I think, and I've always been concerned about mattering all you can be. There are different stages in life. In the first stage of life, while you do that, you have to learn and get an education that you can. In your second area, you're dealing with making a living and dealing with these great you know, trying to influence the world. Uh, if you're an educator, then you influence the world by the students you have, by the colleagues you model, by the, the systems you put in place, by the ideas you have, and also by being strong enough to know that Baruch Atah Baruch Atah You should be blessed in your coming and in your leaving, which is why I always thought that you don't hold an institution hostage. Um, by now, after... 30 years as CEO of, of two large institutions, I'm not burned out. I might be burned up a little bit. I mean, it's been exhausting. And I didn't see anything, and I don't see anything, that I can uniquely give that others younger can't give and maybe give better. So for me, the gift of being able to spend several years teaching and I teach uh, Jewish social philosophy, and I teach leadership, is a great gift to be able to be involved in our community. And I sit on a few boards. Um, sometimes people uh, uh, who are wonderful just call and say, can, can we learn from some of your experiences? And I like doing that. Uh, my wife has been my best friend for 46 years. We have more time together. The children and the grandchildren, I mean, we used to actually be able to see them and hug them, but that will come again. We have kids in Jerusalem and Los Angeles and Cleveland and in New York, so it can keep us uh, being peripatetic. Um, and if anybody wants help with anything, I'm delighted to do it. I'm a scholar in residence from time to time. But this is that next, and it's a good next. It's, it's, you know, some people say, boy, how could you walk away from... I didn't walk away. I still travel with 
but it's good to make space for others. Richard Joel, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's my great pleasure, and you should continue to do your wonderful work. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.